Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of Creepy Movie Tunes, where Alan and I will be curating side B of a mixtape featuring songs that became unsettling through their use in the movies. Welcome back. Hello. Hello, Clarice. <laughs> You've been waiting to use that. I'm I sure. have. I've used, yeah, it's been in the wings. Um, yeah, we are back for side B, side two. I, I never know, is it numeric or is it letter? I think we, I interchange the two all the time. Um, but we are back for the second side of our mixtape of Halloween-themed songs from the movies, from the horror movies that you know and love. Um, I always felt side B, A and B sounded, as a kid, that sounded more... Um What's the word I'm looking for? More sophisticated than saying side one and two. Like saying film instead of movie. Right. There's a certain sense of sophistication when you said side B. I suppose. Because as a kid, I always said side one and two. Yeah, I suppose. Well, I mean, the cassette tape itself said AB. Yeah, right. Always right, right. always said AB. But we are a two-part episode. We're right. not a two-letter episode. Right. <laughs> you know? So I never know. I, I don't know. But I, I mean, it's very common for people to say when, when records and tapes were prominent. You know, yeah, side true. one, side, side two. Side one, side two. Yeah. Um, uh, and so many of these songs come from the age of vinyl and cassette. We, we really did a great job. Not all songs, as we said last week, are Gen X, but all movies used are. Yeah, either Gen X or they're in the Gen X consciousness. Right, exactly. Right? Gen X callbacks, if you right. will. Right, like, like Clockwork Orange was, is really not a Gen X movie, but Gen Xers are familiar with right. it. Right, yeah, Clockwork Orange is actually a boomer film. And in fairness, Shaun of the Dead, as an example, would or Get Out. Would, like a millennial. Millennial. Right. But... The theme, I mean, Gen X themes run through them sure. all. Sure, oh, definitely. In fact, there was a, I forget, there was one of the memes that I threw on our page a while back um, and on, on Facebook, and somebody commented, I think it was a SpongeBob meme, and someone commented that, you know, Gen Xers didn't watch SpongeBob. They did if they had kids. Exactly, and that's, <laughs> and that's what I said. You know, we've always kind of celebrated not only who we were as Gen, Gen Xers, but what we've become. Right. You know? Yeah, and yeah, I know I'm, I'm well aware. I was, uh, you know, <laughs> as a seventies uh, and eighties kid, I'm very much aware that SpongeBob was not around, but it might as well have been because I've seen every episode a hundred times with my boys. So, and every Love film. That show. And, oh yeah. It's brilliant. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I, I think we did a great job picking the films. I do have a question. Yeah. I, we're going to get off topic. I apologize for that. Well, what's new? We said, <laughs> True. We said that we were not going to include scores. Correct. Right? Had we included scores, 
What do you think are the greatest horror scores? Well, Carpenter's Halloween comes to mind instantly. Right away. Yeah, uh, yeah I've already mentioned I love Candyman by Philip Glass. Uh, beyond that, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street's got a great score. You have, of course, Friday the 13th with a kill, 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 kill. Yeah. Um, what else here? Of course, I'm just thinking Slasher. Um, what What are you thinking? Well, I right away, I probably would have included uh, Suspiria by okay, Goblin. Yeah. Um, the Psycho. Oh, Psycho, yeah, With our questions. Yeah, duh, that's, I, that's number one. Yeah, um, Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. The Lullaby, yeah. where Mia Farrow sings, I, that, that always creeped me out. The Thing by John mm-hmm. Carpenter mm-hmm. is another good one. Even, uh, well, Tubular Bells by The Exorcist, but, but even, um, oh, damn it, I just lost it. I'm trying to think of, of some other horror movies with great scores. Because, you know, they're out there. I'm just not... Oh, there, there are so many. Yeah, The Omen. That's oh, what yeah, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Omen, what is so damn creepy about The Omen is that it opens with satanic chanting. Because it opens with, in, in the Latin, uh, Ave Satani. And it's like, especially if you actually, you know, put credence, if you, if you actually put credence <laughs> in and believe, you know, in a lot of the satanic ritual... Um, not Satanism, I know that's different, but you know, at least what in the seventies and eighties people and we talked about this yeah, last the, the, week. Yeah, right. You know, the misinformed and you know, just um that alone, the Ave Satani is creepy as hell from the omen. There there's so many that's why I didn't include scores. It's like how do you decide? Sure. You know? You could almost do an entire episode of scores. Oh you could. Maybe you that's could. next year's. <laughs> and and then you throw in the, the science fiction like alien. Oh yeah, you know, throwing jaw, well jaws we've used in the past, but still, it's just yeah, so many that are maybe just, next year's Halloween themed episode will be scores. Yeah, if you want to go for it, yeah. I, I, the thing about the scores from horror films, I don't think I, they're all instantly recognizable. Right, they just are. Right. I mean, it's they're as ingrained as. John Williams, you know, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and any well, of... Well, music obviously is used for effect, right. and in this case, for horror, it can be used to creep yeah. someone out or build suspense. Yeah. Well, and even some of the newer films, like It Follows. Have you, have you seen It I Follows? I have not, no. Oh, Dave, that movie is incredible. Only The Babadook is, is better. Of all the new wave of horror films, The Babadook followed by It Follows, those two films are just... You've got to see. I liked Sinister a lot. Sinister is very I, I, good. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Sinister is very good as well. Um, but yeah, no, watch it. Follows that one is pretty. That one's creepy as hell. Okay, uh, that's um, my Halloween. And it, it has a great score too. But uh, we are choosing songs. Uh, if you didn't listen last week, we are choosing songs that may not come from horror films, but come from all films in some way horror related. Some songs are scary you know, by themselves, just that they are uh, a more eerie uh, track. Some are not at all frightening, but used for great effect in horror films. We're kind of all over the place. It's a very eclectic mix. Um, And it's, it it was a lot of fun last week. It's going to be a lot of fun this week. All right. Well, I get to start out here in side B. And my first pick is Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny from 1959. And it was used in the film Sleepwalkers. Thank you. 
Oh boy, Sleepwalkers. I remember, this is another example of a song I did not hear prior to seeing the movie. I remember taking a date to see Sleepwalkers. I was very excited because I was very much into Stephen King even then. It was the very first screenplay that King had written that was not based on a previously published work. So he just had this idea, and he, of course he did that later on with Storm of the Century, um, Golden Years, several projects that he just wrote in screenplay form. Right. But this was the first, and it had cats in it, and I love cats. So I was really, really looking forward to this. And you haven't seen it, have you? I saw it. Duh, duh. I saw it once Ugh. when it came out. I have, I'll be honest, I have no memory of the film other than thinking it was garbage. That's all I, well, I, I don't remember the movie at all, but I, I saw it, and I just remember. It was, it was like two hours that I can never get back. You have so. these these shape shifting creatures that sh- shift into these cat like creatures, and the special effects, the makeup, and the latex to me makes them look like uh, from Goonies. What's his name? Is a chunk from oh, not chunk? Not chunk's chunk. a kid. Uh, uh, sloth. 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 Reminds me of sloth. The fact that the cats though are kind of the good guys, and they try to protect the humans from these shape shifting vampires who try to suck the life out of teenage virgin girls <laughs> I would hope would be kind of cool um, it just didn't it didn't work and, and is it King's screenplay or just was it the production and the special effects that made it not work I don't know I mean I suppose the story itself in, in the hands of a different production team might have been better but it just didn't didn't go off well for me anyway that being said I remember watching the movie and just hearing this theme musical theme throughout of the steel guitar uh, thinking, wow, that is a really creepy song. And didn't give it much thought after the movie because I didn't think about the movie at all after seeing it. And then years later on the radio or an oldie station or, or something, I heard, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's that song from Sleepwalkers and realized it's a song called Sleepwalk. Now, actually looking into it a little bit this week, King actually was inspired to write the screenplay because of the song. Really? Yeah. So maybe it's the only example on our list where the song inspired the actual project, the movie. Interesting. Yep. I, um, see, you say it's a creepy song, and I I don't remember it in context because I I genuinely do not remember Sleepwalkers at all. I know I saw it, but I don't remember it. But I've always thought Sleepwalk is one of the most beautiful. In fact, I really wanted to use it on the instrumental Mm, episode. Just couldn't fit it in, so I'm thrilled that it's that you've included it here. But I I just I've always thought it's very dreamy and very I don't know, just very. I I think it's beautiful. So it 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 makes me kind of take pause when you say that you find it. Do you think you find it creepy because of the film? Well, I would say because of the film, but then the fact that King was inspired to write a horror movie based on an instrumental song tells me that it's I'm not the only one that no, feels no, I don't, I, and I, I wouldn't think you're the only one by any stretch I just for me it's just always it always brought an image to me of like walking on the sand by the, by the ocean at night under the stars it's more of a I don't know I always find it more romantic and 
whimsical, I yeah. guess. The movie uses it really well, if I remember correctly. I haven't seen the movie since I probably saw it in the theater, but it uses it to kind of for transitions and to build tension. And when okay. you hear that theme, you know things are going to go awry, if I remember correctly. But okay. It's, it's one of the most prominent uses of a song in a movie that still sticks with me today. Gotcha. It was much better than the movie itself. Yeah, I... I don't know. I was going to watch it again before we recorded well, no, and, because I don't have any. I literally remember nothing other than the cats. That's all I remember of the cats. Right. Um, which, you know, I might as well just watch Cat People and listen to David Bowie, which we could have used for this episode, <laughs> sure. really. Um, but I, I have no memory of. I just don't remember. But you like film. vampires. I do love vampires. But I, it, it's, it, they're vampiric in nature. They're not truly vampires. Right. They're, but here's my thing. Stephen King wrote, without question, one of the greatest vampire novels of all time. Energy vampires. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so they're Colin, oh. Colin Robinson's. Yeah. That's what they are. Uh, so, but, uh, no, I mean, Salem's Lot, I mean, I hail is still one of the greatest vampire. It may be the best vampire novel. Well, I've, it was I've the seen. first, if I'm not mistaken, the first modern vampire it story. Yeah, it was the first one to bring vampires into the into contemporary culture. Um, so the fact that he, just hearing your review, could drop the bomb so terribly on sleepwalkers, and I know that they're not vampires in the traditional sense, but I well, don't know. I'm telling you what, I'm sure if he had decided, I said last week, he sometimes people need to stay in their lane, and that sounds really disparaging. But had, had King did what he does best and taken that concept and written a novel or a short story or a novella, it may have worked, right? It just it, it's very difficult. It's kind of like uh, you know a, a virtuoso guitar player, who if you're a virtuoso guitar player, you can play other instruments but you're not going to be able to play the other instruments as well. You know, to the right. layman's ear, it may sound as fun, but you're not going to probably have that same genius on a different instrument that you haven't spent your entire life devoted to learning, right? Right. And that's where King is. Yeah, King can write a screenplay. Of course he can. But is he going to be able to bring out those elements like we talked about last week, the, the inner monologue that, he, that so well defines his stories, um, just his description, his character building. You, you can't really do that in a different medium. And that's where I think... you probably fails more than not okay now had it been a novella or a short story written as one and then someone else had taken that and as their project turned it into a film do you think it would have been more successful potentially i i think i mean i think screenwriting and screen um adaption specifically is a special skill right it really is um people spend many years studying and some just have a knack for it. I remember, like, for instance, uh, Jurassic Park, to me, is one of the greatest screenplays written on, from another source material. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I think they've improved upon the book. Because it just it's it's perfect in every way. And we can talk about that some other time. So there is a craft to that. And, you know, just King, I'm sure with a lot of time, would maybe develop a knack for that. It just, that's not his wheelhouse. That's right. not his area of expertise. And I would have liked to have seen that story and see how he handled it. Because... To me, one of the biggest turnoffs of the movie was the special effects, the the vampire cat people. It just looked silly hmm. to me. Okay, well, I don't know that I'll rewatch it based on your. your now, maybe review. I missed the whole point. Maybe it was supposed to be a campy B type, you know, fifties hmm. style. And if that's the case, then I missed the whole point, which is quite possible for a, what twelve year old boy. Hmm. Uh, I guess I was older. I was on a date, so probably fifteen, sixteen year old boy who probably dismissed the, the point of it but okay. I don't know I don't think so yeah, I, there, there were two films uh, from your list that I just 
one that I had no memory of, although I've I've seen it, and that is Sleepwalkers. The other one is coming up that I I just never saw. Um, both Stephen King, actually. Um, but yeah, I I just I was gonna rewatch it and just didn't get around to it. A little fun fact uh, that the song Sleepwalk, um, this version by Santo and Johnny, was the last single to hit number one in the 1950s decade. Really? Yep. It was the the last number one? Yep. Okay. That is pretty pretty cool. Just, you know... Yeah. Doesn't mean anything. This is a cool fact. Well, no, I, but that, that, yeah. that's the best part of our show. I love when I learn right. cool, cool facts. Right. I mean, right. doing the research, that's that's often the, the most fun for me is just learning something I did not know. Um, All right, you're up. Okay, my turn. I begin side B this week with a song written by George Lynch and Jeff Pilson of Dokken. And it is the theme song to the 1987 movie A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. think I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 3. 3 is actually one of the best in the series. I'm not sure that I saw uh, Part 2. Part 2 is one of the worst in the series. It's, okay. so, Maybe that's why I didn't see it. Yeah, Part 2, you skip Part 2. Part 2 doesn't even follow the formula. They they were going to try and do different things with Freddy's character that just didn't work and then in Part 3 they turned him back into a nocturnal nightmare Went back with demon. what worked. Um, yeah, including Part 3 brought back Nancy. Oh, okay. okay. So the original, uh, the original last girl, she returns in part three, um, Heather Langenkamp, um, as an adult who is now helping other children who are experiencing Freddy. And do they eventually uh, make one where it's her own children? Because that would be the next logical. No, step. she she doesn't survive part three. Oh, okay. Which spoiler. I know I know is a spoiler, but um, <laughs> now I will say though, did you ever see Wes Craven's New Nightmare? No. That is hands down the best of the series. Oh yeah, okay. New Nightmare is actually it takes place in just in the real world. Okay, and it stars Robert England as Robert England and Heather Langenkamp as Heather Langenkamp. Oh, it's, so it's meta. It's very meta because what ends up happening is Heather Langenkamp's son starts having dreams of Freddie and Robert England 
is like he's he's losing he thinks he's losing his mind and he's like literally this character that he plays is beginning to emerge from within him and turning him into the monster itself. Okay, you sold me on it. No more. It, it, yeah, Good. I'll stop because I don't, I, I don't yep, want to. Yep, yep, yep. No spoilers, but I mean, if you really like meta, if you like a cerebral horror film, what Wes Craven does in New Nightmare, that one hands down is the most brilliant of the series. I, I love well, I love meta stuff. I know it's been played out, but I love it. Yeah. Now you will really, really like New Nightmare then. But that's not where this song comes from. <laughs> so, um, Dream Warriors, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, that was actually the first in the franchise to star Patricia Arquette. She she pre- debuts in this one, and she's in the series for a couple of films. Um, the band, Dawkins, they were asked to write the song, which had to be titled Dream Warriors, uh, the name for the kids in the film who fight back against their nocturnal tormentor. Um, fortunately, that is a song-friendly title, unlike, say, I don't know, Ghostbusters, <laughs> So, which we did not use because we'd already used it, uh, so it was off-limits for this episode. Well, and that song isn't creepy in any stretch of the imagination. No, no, but it still technically could have could have worked. But no, um, Dream Warriors is actually, it is more of a song-friendly title. So they were able to write a big chorus around it, and the verse lyrics are more gen- generic, so... You know, it deals with sleep and torment. Outside the context of the film, it could actually be a song about a guy trying to get over a breakup, honestly. Uh, The music video for Dream Warriors, um, it inhabits the same world as the film, with the band showing up in Patricia Arquette's dream to help her vanquish Freddy Krueger. And and the film hewed to the same demographic as MTV, right? Teenagers at the time. So they put the video in heavy rotation, giving Dawkins more airplay on, than they on the deserve. Network. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I just disparage a hairband? I've never done that before. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just biting my tongue. Um, it, it doesn't hurt because I'm not a huge hair. I'm, I'm, I've never been a huge hairband. Any dig I fan. can get in, I'm going to get in. Yeah. I, it's, it's not my go to genre, but I definitely do not have the. The hatred for it that you do. Not um, hatred, just dislike, strong dislike. Strong dislike. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, anyway, this was released as a single to promote the film, uh, but it was not included on the actual film soundtrack, which was just the film score. Uh, Dream Warriors was the only original song written for the movie. But there are a lot of disappointed teenagers that went to Camelot Music and brought that one home. I'm sure there were. It was, however, included on Dawkins' fourth album titled Back for the Attack, which was their peak. It was their highest charting uh, success. As Dawkins got more successful, they also got at each other's throats, culminating in the 1988 Monsters of Rock tour that hammered the last nail in the coffin. They didn't release another album until 1995 after a long split. Um, according to lead singer Don Dokken, uh when the band got the assignment, he wrote his Dream Warriors and his bandmates wrote theirs. Uh, his was more of tempo, more of a rock song. They had given uh, him a rough cut of the movie so he could know what the movie was about, so he wrote the lyrics, I lie awake and dread the lonely nights, I'm not alone. I wonder if these heavy eyes can face the unknown. Um, so he wrote his version, they wrote theirs. It, it's kind of funny because... They, they came to him and said that they actually liked his version better. Um, so, because ego was this huge thing, I guess, and dog ego is a huge thing in all rock bands. Uh, we've talked about it with Kiss. We've talked about it with the Beatles. We've talked about it, you know, when, mm-hmm. wherever you have the, sure. you know, the, the majority of power. You almost need to have one ego and the rest kind of followers yeah. for yeah, it to work exactly. for many years. Yeah. So, in an effort to, to 
land hits, Doc can put some gloss on songs like this one that they knew were going to be released as a single and, and get videos. It paid off in popularity. Um, they certainly uh, climbed the charts, but it also cost them some of their metal cred, um, which, you know, it happens. I remember they had that little saying so you could pronounce their name correctly because so many people would say Dokken, so they would say Rockin' with Dokken. Yeah. So that's uh, how I always remember that. Oh my that God, concept. I remember that, yeah. yeah. Um, an earlier Dokken song, Into the Fire, it also appears in the movie. But um, yeah, Dream Warriors, it really is, of of the sequels, the direct sequels, of course, New Nightmare, which I just talked about, is not technically... New Nightmare pretends that nothing else exists other than the original film, for okay. one thing. Okay. It's more of like um, the, the new Halloween films that are coming out. Right. Where they, you know, there's no mention whatsoever of Halloween 3, 4, 5, so, you know, it, it's just a direct sequel to Halloween 2, uh, the, the films that are coming out now. But, um, yeah, it, it really is. Of all the direct sequels, Nightmare 3 is is hands down my favorite. Um, doesn't mean it's particularly good. I mean, really, if you want good Nightmare on Elm Street, stick with the original, stick with the new Nightmare and call it a day. But Part 3 is... Here, here's the thing about part three. Um, you have the score. You have, of course, the Will Smith song, which we used, I think, in our first Halloween episode. Probably, um, Season yeah. one, a Nightmare on My Street, which was meant to be used for Nightmare on Elm Street film, and then it was cut, and then there were legal battles that ensued, whatever. But only you really only have the score, and then you have the jump rope, you know, the, the chant, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. The closest thing that the franchise has to an actual signature song is Dream Warriors. Okay. Um, there, there has never been another song written directly for Freddy Krueger or for Nightmare on Elm Street. So I thought I'd include it. It's not that I'm, I have any, any particular partiality to the song. <clears throat> and I know you're not a particular fan of hair bands. It's just a strong dislike that you have. Uh, but <laughs> this song isn't bad, though. It's no, it, it 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 really isn't. And honestly, it, Freddy deserves a place on our list. I mean, he is one of the most iconic, uh, you know, characters in horror. So I thought I would begin side B with Dawkins and move on from there. All right, rocking with Dawkins. Another band I never expected to hear on the Gen X mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. It's good. All right. I have no room to talk because I keep bringing up really, really bad Stephen King movies. So, and my and my next one. This one surprised the hell out of me. Really? Yeah, yeah. I just I don't associate you with this band. Well, I'm not, yeah, I don't like this. Band. I, that's my point. So, I well, just, but my description is not without a dig. So, go, <laughs> you go, go, go for it. It's my music snobbery. Um, yeah, I'm not a big <laughs> fan of ACDC because I pretty much see them as a one trick pony. Um, it, it's fine with what they do. I'm just they did it over and over and over and over again. Well, if it sells, well, no, yeah, and it's sold, then I you know, good for them. That's yeah. that's yeah, very much good for them. Um, but speaking of of weak screenplays, as we as I talked about with uh, Sleepwalkers, this one here, and I think this is my fourth pick from a King inspired film, and I have more to come. Uh, Maximum Overdrive from 1986, um, ACDC. Um, and I, I, I get. I'm not sure if they actually wrote it specifically. I, I think they did write it specifically for the film. I know that it didn't appear on any other records, so that's why I believe it was specifically for the movie. Now maybe they were working on a song because King did reach out to the band, like he did to reached out to the Ramones for um, Pet Cemetery. 
and ended up um, you know wanting them to to be used on the soundtrack, which actually makes sense that ACDC is used on this soundtrack because Maximum Overdrive was a film, and by the way, it was Stephen King's first and last direction of a feature film. So again, Steve, it's cool that you try new things, but I think after that first one, he realized that, again, leave the direction to somebody else, something that George Lucas should have also learned a long time ago. Another great example, right? Lucas creates this wonderful world. He's just not the best director, and that's not his fault. That's just not his skill set. Right. So it, it was actually inspired from Trucks, which was a short story in, in um, Stephen King's first short story collection, Night Shift, in 1978. And it actually is a really kind of a cool concept, okay? So you have something happens in space. I don't know, some meteor goes by, one of those you know early sci-fi explanations, and causes all of the machines in the world to have consciousness and take over the world. Kind of cool. In fact, the opening is, is great. The opening scene, you have, you, you know, the slow awakening. In fact, starts with this, one of those pixel banners that scan news or announcements on a bank. And it changes from something to the respect of like, hey, you, you know, thanks for being a customer to F you. <laughs> and then Stephen King, and we mentioned he plays, has a lot of cameos in his movie, especially in the 80s. And he played um, just a, a patron going to the bank to get money out of the ATM. And he puts his card in and it says, well, excuse the French, you are an asshole. <laughs> and he turns to his wife and says, honey, the machine just called me an asshole. And then it pumps right into the ACDC and you see um, all sorts of mishaps, uh, notably the kind of the money scene at the beginning, one of those drawbridges um, ends up going up while traffic is on it and um, cars end up slipping through down into the river below or, or falling backwards on each other and it's, Actually, not not too bad for the time period um, building that scene, but it just the, the whole movie itself. And I haven't watched it since the '80s, so you know I just remember key scenes. It maybe isn't fair for me to make uh, these types of judgments since I haven't seen it in a long time, and I'm just basically remembering what I watched back in the '80s. I just remember not being as impressed, thinking that it was a great concept. I remember the short again. The short story works really well because it's from the perspective of the people inside this gas station. Uh, who are surrounded by these trucks who demand that the humans, basically they force the humans to fill them up with gas so they can continue terrorizing the world. And it's a cool concept. It just didn't didn't work cinematically as well as it possibly could have with King writing the screenplay and, and directing. But again, I think it's cool that he tried, right? They tried to get out there and, and, uh, and, and branch out a little bit. Um, but the most famous thing from the movie, and it's not Emilio Estevez's acting, uh, is this song. And it perfect because if you are going to have a, a movie about machines coming alive, what better band than just the, the, the loud, raw energy of ACDC to accompany that? And so the song is called Who Made Who, which as an English teacher has always bothered me, right? <laughs> Who Made Whom just doesn't sound nearly as, um, I don't know, it just sounds a bit pretentious.
who made who, this is my little dig, and it's not mine. I, it's, it, I found it online. Some online music fan said, this is the only ACDC song I've ever heard that has, it has vaguely thought-provoking lyrics. And it kind of does, right? Because it's that old idea, you know, it's, it's nothing new, but that idea of, okay, so, you know, God creates humans, human creates machine, the God of the machine, machines take over, you know, who, who that type of idea, right? Yeah. Uh, are we all just a long line of, of evolution in a way that we never really imagined? And will machines, and of course now with AI really taking, I don't know if you've watched some of these AI paintings that are being made, if you've oh, heard yeah, of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So maybe something like maximum overdrive will someday happen, but it's it's a scary um, prospect. But it works. The ACDC song works, and this is probably the only ACDC song that I'll listen to willfully and enjoy it. <laughs> you know, I I don't hate ACDC. I um I'm not a I I, I very seldom if ever actually turn them on, but I don't mind if they're playing. Um, I can only take so much of Brian Johnson's voice. Uh, before I need to turn them off, but I mean, nonetheless, I, they're still they they record it. If I'm looking for just an '80s playlist, "You Shook Me All Night Long," "Thunderstruck," "Highway to Hell," these are songs that take me back to that. Back in black, back, basically back, the yeah. same song done four times. Uh, agreed, <laughs> agreed. No, I'm, you're not hurting my feelings, <laughs> but but I mean, I can I can appreciate it for what it was, and it takes me back to that time. Yeah, you know, yeah, um, which is true of most of the hair bands for me. It's not. Uh, and by the way, I don't think ACDC is a hair band. No, I just not. I do refer no. to them as hard rock. Yeah, they, they're hard rock. They're they're very close to metal, but they've never they're quite just hard got rock. There. Yeah, they're they're hard rock, um, but. Uh, yeah. Now, you know what cracks me up, though? Because hmm. I know your list. I know it's coming up. I, the listeners don't, of course. But you you know you had a chance to really pull from 80s alternative for Stephen King. You could have pulled The Cure. You could have pulled The Cult. You could have pulled um, XTC. I mean, th- there were so oh, many. Oh, from, from the new It movies? From the new It movies. Yeah, no, I could have. I, I, I was, I was but really... But like six different ways from the new It movies. That was, that was a charming scene where, where the kids were... Well, it's, happy, and it didn't fit. Well, it wasn't creepy. It wasn't creepy at all. It, it actually, if I remember correctly, is, aren't they cleaning up Bev's bathroom? They at that are, point? but they're doing it in a way. It's like a Stranger moment, a Stranger Things moment, sure. where it's just. I don't know. I, I didn't consider that song. Okay, so you were looking. Creepy. You so all of your songs actually come from scenes for you that were. Yeah, the song. My whole criteria was a song that is creepy, either creepy in its own right, or made creepy because of the context in the film. Okay, not. There are a lot of songs that appear in horror movies, incidentally. Right. That's why I, that's why I managed to focus on Don't Fear the Reaper from The Stand and not necessarily from Halloween, because it was just playing in the car okay. in Halloween. I got you. It takes a central role in the opening of The Stand. Right. For me, it had to be central to the, the storyline, but it did not have to be from a scary scene. Okay. If that makes sense. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, it doesn't have to be from a scene at all. Like, Dream Warriors plays over the closing credits. It's yeah, no, that's fine. I have a couple to do the two. Pet Cemetery plays plays over the right. closing credits of Pet Cemetery. Yeah, but, but um, okay. No, I, I just I was throwing that out there. I was really surprised you didn't go with. I mean, it very much like Stranger Things gave you like sure a, a soundtrack of you know, a dream soundtrack to pull from. You know, artists that I know you love. I was just surprised yeah, no, you didn't do and, it. and that's why I think that's the difference. Like the the songs that play over the credits I chose were were intentionally creepy. Like Pet Cemetery was written to be creepy. Or I picked a song that was integral to the movie that was taken out of context gotcha. and made creepy. Okay. No, that so. makes sense. Wait for us to define our credit uh, into our second part of the episode. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that, that's about it that I have for that one there. Um, you know, uh, 
I always thought it would be cool to do a podcast on 80s Stephen King movies, you know, picking them apart, having fun with them. This would definitely be one we would feature. Well, I can tell you that this is the one movie on your list I have never seen. Yeah. I've never seen Maximum I just, I had no desire to see Maximum Overdrive. I remember even just as a teen watching the trailers for this movie, I just had no interest. I mean, it looked like it was going to be so bad that... I, I just I think didn't want to go there. What turns me off, and this, this is my only, I have one criticism of the Lord of the Rings movies. One. And that's like, I always feel like they did it with the Yurikai, and they also did it later with, um, with the Orcs and the Hobbit versions. They have to like make one bad villain that you can recognize. Right. So they took the one Yurikai, and they kind of made him the leader, and he made him recognizable. Lurts. Yeah, wanted Lertz to have was that. And I feel they did the same thing here in the movie, where they took one of the uh, semi-trucks, and they gave it like a... Um, uh, almost like a green goblin, the green goblin head, uh, yeah. head on on the truck to kind of personify it. I didn't think that was necessary. I think just I think it's scarier to have these normal everyday machines turn on people rather than trying to personify their evil. I, I agree. I, I always thought the the same thing, um, uh, even about Lurts in, in Lord of the Rings. It's you don't need a you, you already have a big bad. His name right. is Sauron, right? Right, and you, <laughs> you have know? Saruman, and then you, you have, have Saruman as the as the you know yeah. the the second uh, in command. Now yeah, I understand, I, like I think it's Arzog from The Hobbit. He was actually mentioned. He's an actual Tolkien character. He is, but he but he doesn't. But but he was fight he, Thorin. Yeah, he actually he dies at the Battle of of uh, from Moria. Right, I mean, right, long, right, right, historically right. long before yes the events of The Hobbit. Um, and Lurtz was just made out of. Yeah, yeah, Lurtz was not a real. Well, look at look at everything they gave to Arwen, but that was probably to bring in a female audience. That, that's more. exactly so, what it was. But uh, anyway, I'm not not critical of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. I love them. I love them too. No, trust me, there's close to a perfect movie you can get to. Um, I, I always consider him one movie. That's just that's a minor criticism. Yeah. I have. and actually, um, the very first Hobbit film, the first one, it follows the novel to the letter. I loved what. What is the first one? Unexpected Journey. Yeah, that's Radagast the Brown and yeah, well, holding some elements. Yeah, from that the Silmarillion. But even just the unexpected party. I mean, word for yeah. word, chapter one is there. No, it is. It is. I, we talked about the, the the cut version that I have. Have we talked about? Yeah, that Yeah, where they yeah, they, they take out everything that's not. I've I've not actually seen it. It's though. like four three three and a half maybe four hours of of only material from the three movies that were in. See, I Tol- would, that were Tolkien inspired, like Tolkien written, either from Silmarillion. Lost Tales or The Hobbit itself. Yeah, I would love to see that. Yeah, because once you bring in the dwarf elfin romance, I'm, I'm, I'm. I don't. You know, I never saw the other, the second two movies. Really? In their own right, I watched the first one and then um, just was kind of disappointed because I felt like The Hobbit, the source material, made for one really good movie. Okay. It didn't need to be you know a cash cow. Right. And, and dragged out for, for three movies. And it was certainly a cash grab is all it was. And so I, I, I might have seen the second one in theater. Third one, I don't think I saw. But then when this cut came out and I watched it, I'm like, well, this is perfect. I don't need to see the original. Yeah. And the third one, the destruction of Lake Town and, and uh, the Battle of the Five, I, I loved that. But it was my whole thing was Tariel. When they bring in an elf that did not exist in the literature and for the for the very purposefully to... to create a potential elf dwarf romance you eliminate that and you have suddenly 
two movies, which I could have accepted. I could have accepted The Hobbit as two films. It's a trilogy, it just... But I, and I, I understand, too, they're trying to pull in different demographics that wouldn't necessarily watch Tolkien. So they want Female, and not to be sexist, obviously lots of female fans, Tolkien fans exist. Right. But I think for the average moviegoer, they wanted to bring in women, they also, so they had a romantic element, and they wanted to bring in, you know, I, I feel like they tried to make Tolkien too accessible to non-Tolkien fans. I, I Whereas agree. the Lord of the Rings movies did not do that. Right. And, and I mentioned Arwen, I had no problem with right. Arwen. I mean, Arwen is there, she's, she's, a, she's important. Right. If you look at, she's not in Lord of the Rings, but if you look at the appendices, there's a wealth of yes. material. And Tolkien now. didn't include women like he should right. have. I mean, Aon is the only one, and I mean, even her role is... Galadriel, of course. Oh, Galadriel, yeah. yeah. But um, and, yeah. and the Aon's whole thing is based on the misogyny of yeah, because not she's, being allowed to be a soldier. Exactly. But, so I don't think Tolkien was sexist. It's just that's how the... You know, the story doesn't line up to how you would have proper diversity in a film, right. which is why the new Lord of the Rings um, TV series, which is going to be on... Uh, Amazon Prime, Prime. here um, that comes soon. I'm it has a lot of criticism now. See, I think I'll be less critical on that because it, it's new. It's new material. Yeah, the source material provides the backdrop of the Second Age. Yeah, but the characters, you know, exist within that world, but are not inspired by Tolkien. I'm okay with that. Well, I mean, you just don't take something Tolkien did and then try to. Like, well, you are going to have. I mean, Galadriel's there. Elrond yes, is yeah. there. You, but you, the main characters, I guess, are going to be new. Okay, I'm I'm actually really excited yeah. about it because it, here's the thing: when you're talking about the Second Age, and we are so off. Oh, we are. Right. I'm right sorry, now. folks. We're all, but, we'll, we'll steer back here real yeah, soon. But um, when you talk Second Age, realistically, I look at it more as this is a work inspired by. Yeah, no, that's Tolkien. what, and that's how they're presenting. Yeah, so. which which to me, you can do no wrong that, as, yeah. as long as you live in that world. But some Tolkien correctly. purists are upset at the diversity yeah, of the cast because there's are. a black elf. You know, they, they said, "Well, there are no black elves," and I'm like, "Well, there are no elves to begin with." So right, guess yeah. what? Well, and I've heard <laughs> criticism because there's a female dwarf that is beardless. Right, and I know female dwarfs have beards, but who knows? This one may have shaved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we I'm don't like, know. Just, just just relax, dude. I just you can't you can't have enough token. I mean that's my my mantra. Yeah. I, I love token, so I'm 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 excited and game for anything they throw at us. Let's go back to horror. Yes, let's do that. Let's do <laughs> which, that. Which which token did not write? Um, all right. So uh, my next pick is Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Originally comes from the album Let Love In from 1994, and this film has been used everywhere. And it's a great example of a creepy song that was made further, further creepy, creepy. Yeah, based on its context. Exactly. Um, this is a, a semi 
comically melodramatic take on Stephen King's novel, The Stand. It was actually based, the song was inspired by The Stand. It depicts a nightmarish figure emerging on the edge of town. Uh, The song's title comes actually from a line in John Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, Should intermittent vengeance arm again his red right hand to plague us, what if all her stores were opened and the firmament of hell should spout her cataracts of fire? That's the line from Paradise Lost, which I've never read. I, I, I've read parts of it. I, as an English teacher, I'm, I, I should be ashamed. I'm not, <laughs> because I've never wanted to read Milton. But that's the line that uh, references the red right, red right hand from Paradise Lost. Cave used the same line in his track Song of Joy from his 1996 album Murder Ballads. Uh, in this instance... He sings, quotes John Milton on the walls in the victim's blood. Police are investigating at tremendous cost. In my house, he wrote his red right hand. That, I am told, is from Paradise Lost. Actually comes from Nick Cave's album. But um, nonetheless, Red Right Hand was uh, featured in the first three films of the Scream franchise. This is Scream. Uh, yeah, I think in the fifth one? Um, I know that it wasn't in the... Anyway, I... Uh, well, I just, the fifth one, is that the one that just came out? Because I saw it, but I don't... I think it's in that too. Anyway. It, it might be. Yeah. I, I don't, I just, it's just saw it. not worth looking up. I, I, yeah, I'm not going to. Um, but it was definitely featured in the first three. Um, in the first movie, it plays as the town of Woodsboro issues a curfew due to a killer on the loose. In Scream 2, there's a remixed version from DJ Spooky, <laughs> while <laughs> Scream 3 features an alternate rendition from Cave called Red Right Hand 2. Uh, adding to the song's cred, Red Right Hand also shows up in the movies Slash, Cirque de Freak, The Vampire's Assistant, Hellboy, and The X-Files. Uh, aside from appearing in the latter film, it was also a key track in an X-Files TV episode, Ascension when Scully's kidnapper gets pulled over by a policeman. Uh, It's actually included on the show's 1996 soundtrack, Songs in the Key of X. Uh, And and there are more. I could have kept going. Red Right Hand is one of those songs that has been used in in the horror genre since its release. I mean, it it just keeps... Well, Nick Cave lends himself to to that. He does. He's great. Yeah, and I I love Nick Cave. I mean, he's just dark. The stuff he puts out, it is, again, as a horror fan... I, I love his work, but there's also such satirical, such over the top. Right. You know, it's it's not meant. It, it, he's like like an Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the songs, yes, they're dark and they're very. Uh, some of them are very disturbing, frankly. In fact, I used one for Scary Halloween last year that was, frankly, kind of well, very disturbing. I think, but it's so over the top. You can tell he's having fun with it. Yeah. You know, it's not. Not meant to, to offend. And honestly, it, it is always used to such great effect. I had to include it. And here I, I just went with Scream as the the winner of the films that I would choose from. So that would and be... And that's two songs we talked about that were in Scream. That's true. Yeah. There you go. That was my number number two. So. All right. Well, my next one is not from a horror film, but it definitely is from a film that is um, horror-related, and that is Beetlejuice. And the song is uh, the Banana Boat song, Deo, from Harry Belafonte, of course. Deo, 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 Deo,
Yet another song that I had not heard until I saw the movie. I just was not familiar with Calypso music. I was not familiar with Harry Belafonte as a kid. And when the famous scene, and, and those of you, I'm, I'm guessing most people in the audience have seen Beetlejuice. If you haven't, um, you know, it's, it's a haunted house story done in Tim Burton style. And um, Alec Baldwin and um, Gina Davis are ghosts that are very, very nice people. And they would like to drive this family out of their house. They just aren't sure how to do it. Right. And of course, they call on this demon Beetlejuice to help them. And there is a scene at the end where there's a, a dinner party where the family invites these people in from the city and the, um, the ghosts take over and possess them and make them all sing and dance to Dale. Yeah, well, and Dick Cavett is the best. Yeah. Just, just seeing Dick Cavett get up and yeah, um, oh, it, it is one of the great scenes of '80s movies. Yes, I, it just I Beetlejuice just never gets old for me. Anyway, I can watch it right now. Um, you went with the right choice. Jump on the line is all. Jump in the line is the one I prefer musically. Right, I, I just that's I, at the end when when right. on a rider it's made yeah. peace with the ghost. The family's yeah, she, made peace. She's with the dancing ghost. with the football, the, the <laughs> ghostly football team on the, the stairwell. I am um, now. Nah, I, I love Harry Belafonte's upbeat stuff much yep. more. But yeah, this scene though, it is so. It's a, it's just a touchstone of pop culture now. Well, and, you know? and if you're going to say that any scene in the movie is scary, this one is really creepy because you have the uh, hand coming out of the, the plates and right. pulling people down, and and yeah. So this is the closest to heart. I have no idea how or why Burton ended up conceptualizing this scene. <laughs> yeah, um, it's... I would like whatever he was having at the time, <laughs> but yeah, maybe, it, it was it was out there. Yeah, maybe he was eating a zagnut. Yeah. <laughs> Eating his <laughs> no, this, Here's a nut for you. <laughs> the song is, uh, is this, of course, uh, Harry Belafonte's uh, signature number, considered his signature number. And uh, it's Calypso rhythms suited uh, more for the beach than a haunted house. But again, here's that word. It's that juxtaposition um, that really can make things unsettling. Yep. That's a great pick. I, I, I just, I, that movie never gets old. It will forever be one of my favorites. Well, and there's a Broadway musical now. On um, that's actually I think it's still on Broadway for Beetlejuice. That's supposed to be very good. Yeah, I, I know it's out there. I, I haven't read any reviews or know anything. Yeah, I haven't about seen. I'm gonna wait. I usually I mean, we're about eight hours out of New York, so we wait till the tour companies usually come through right. Cleveland, unless it's you know. Well, really, we're, really we're we're lucky because the the musical theater in Cleveland though is 
I think second. Oh, it's, second it's the second the biggest York. theater district in the country yeah, after New York. Yeah, Cleveland. I mean, what we Playhouse have, Square is incredible. We're yeah, very it really lucky. is. Um, okay, well, my next one, I really only need to say Putonong Moritz, you know, or however he says it. I'm not Moritz. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not Peter Boyle. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, this one. If, if there's any song that I can be accused of not playing by the rules for this episode, it would be this one. It is Putin on the Ritz, and it is from Young Frankenstein. I still, I just watched this clip yesterday, and I still laugh oh, out loud. It is just... Every it, time I watch it. Just the entire film. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes and cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper, trying hard to look like Gary Cooper. Come, let's mix with Rockefellers, walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst. I mean, I love Brooks and I love Wilder, but what they did on this one, hands down, it's my favorite it's, Mel it's Brooks. Best, it's Mel Brooks' best. Yeah, it really is. Blazing um, Saddles is very good, too. Blazing Saddles yeah. is very good. I, I know Gen Xers swear by space. I like Spaceballs. Yeah. I've never loved yeah, Spaceballs. I haven't either. I haven't either. Um, but, man, Young Frankenstein, especially the hump. <laughs> they can't decide which side, uh, you know. Um, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Um, all right, so uh, we're talking here about the old song and dance routine, which is a Hollywood staple. I mean, images of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Gene Kelly, which we've already talked about, maybe with Leslie Karen swooping across the silver screen. But, of course, you cannot forget that incomparable duel of Gene Wilder and Peter Boyle from the fantastic comedy Young Frankenstein. You just can't. Uh, adapted by Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks from Mary Shelley's famous novel, the movie provides one send-up of horror movies after another, including this great dance scene where Wilder, playing Dr. Frankenstein, <laughs> introduces his creation, the monster, played by Boyle, to a live theater audience. Um, it is one of the most inspired comedic moments in a truly inspired film. But Wilder actually had to fight to include it. Really? I was really surprised by this. Yeah, uh, while working on Blazing Saddles, actually, Gene Wilder began fiddling with the idea for Young Frankenstein. And director Mel Brooks saw the title's name on the actor's notepad and inquired about it. After Wilder explained the basic plot, Brooks was all in and agreed to direct and help write the script. So Wilder would write all day, and then Brooks would come over after dinner and read it. The pair worked well together with Wilder taking Brooks' notes and making adjustments to the story to strengthen it. But there was that one scene which they butted heads over. Mel Brooks did not want putting on the Ritz in the film. Hmm. According to Wilder, um, one night uh, when Brooks came over, he looked at the pages and said disapprovingly, you tap-danced Irving Berlin in Top Hat and Tails with the Monster. Yeah, and, and, and what's your point? That's yeah, perfect. Uh, Brooks, Brooks, I guess, found the bit frivolous. Uh, he told Wilder that, while it was not a bad idea, it was funny, but it was too far outside their salute to the black and white classics. He told Wilder that uh, you know, they didn't want to be ridiculous. And Wilder disagreed. He saw it as crucial to the script. So Wilder, he explained to Brooks that 
they had to convince the scientific members of Transylvania that uh, with the procedure that Frankenstein was using on the creature, he could be taught to be a civilized human being instead of a monster who was going to kill their children. So he argued to keep the scene in the script until, by his own admission, he turned red in the face. They finally decided to film the scene and test it with an audience, agreeing that if the reaction was negative, that it would be cut. So the scene itself, it took five days to shoot, and Alan Johnson, who also did Springtime for Hitler, for the producers, he choreographed the scene. They, they kept having to cut it. Uh, they, they kept having to cut the scene, though, because the audience of extras just went crazy. <laughs> uh, Brooks kept having to remind them that they were supposed to be afraid of the monster because they were having way too much fun, and they kept killing the scene. Um, if there were any doubts about the scene, though, they were gone because test audiences ate this up. I mean, they, they just could not get it. It's enough. one of the most memorable scenes it, in the movie. It is, yeah. And Brooks has since said that Gene was dead right because it took the movie to another level. He said it took it to our level. It was one example where uh, Brooks said he was clearly in the wrong and this is what made Gene Wilder such such an incredible, incredible actor, writer, and uh, the like. So, yeah, I, I had to include it. I, it just right away, and I didn't... It, I don't know. I, I almost pulled it a couple of times because it's not a horror film, but oh my God, when am I ever going to have another opportunity to include the monster scene putting on the ribs? Well, and it's inspired by horror it, films. Yeah, it's, so. it's Frankenstein. Yep. So, yep, that, I had to include Frankenstein. it. Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah, Good there pick. you go. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm, in fact, I'm probably going to watch that tonight. I, I have that on Blu-ray. It's just a fun one oh, to watch. Oh, it is. It's incredible. All right, so my next pick is another song, old, old song that was um, brought back. Uh, it makes sense to bring this back for a couple reasons. I'm talking about We Belong Together by Robert and Johnny uh, from 1958 originally that was used in the movie Christine. Another Stephen King adaptation. I think that's number four for me. Five. That's number five. And if you haven't seen Christine or if you don't know the concept, right, this this kid in the 70s buys an old classic car and restores it. Uh, it's a Plymouth Fury, I think, a 1957 or 58, the Fury, 59, somewhere along. I don't know for sure. Cool car. And uh, the car, you know, has a mind of its own. <laughs> Literally. Um, and um, play, likes to play 50s music, right? Because that's when the car was made. So you have a lot of 50s tunes on the soundtrack, which is cool. In fact, the, the book and the, the movie itself is kind of a, an homage to the 50s. And in fact, the scene where this um, appears, this song appears, is at a drive-in. So again, another 50s um, stereotype, if you will. 
And uh, the scene, and I won't ruin the movie for people that haven't seen it, but but in this particular scene, um, the main character, I forget his name, but his girlfriend um, is with him, and she's kind of feeling like he cares about the car more than, than he cares about her. And so she starts to kind of slap the seat a little bit, like, you don't like me slapping your other girl? He, I think she refers to the car as his other girl. She does, yeah. Well, he goes out to get some concessions, and the car locks her in and, and causes her to choke on her food, and she almost dies. And this song is playing while that's happening. So this one really perfect for our criteria because it's integral to the story, it's creepy, and it's a song that was never meant to be creepy, but turns creepy because of the context here. Yeah. Um, the song was, like I said, written by... Actually, no, this is different. It was performed by Robert and Johnny, but it was actually written by Robert and Johnny, which is somewhat of a rarity in the 50s, right? Yes. Because lots of artists would just perform other people's compositions. Um, it made it to number 32 on the pop charts, and it was later covered uh, the next year by Richie Valens, Richie Valens, which may be the better-known version. Yeah, I would argue that if, if people know this song, um, if outside of the boomer generation, people that know this song know Valens' version first and foremost now now I, I i just that's all i'm going to say about it because you know we've talked a lot of Stephen king other than the fact that i want to drive a plymouth fury someday <laughs> i want to go to a drive-in on a saturday night i want to scope out chicks on roller skates serving hamburgers and chocolate malts but i'm going to leave my wife at home just in case my wheels get jealous there you go yeah <laughs> although the drive-in by yourself that's <laughs> <laughs> true that's i'm I mean, I, maybe I, I'll bring someone I don't like for him. There you go. Yeah, yeah that, that works. So, no, it's it's a great song. I, 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 the one thing I will say about Christine is that the soundtrack is fantastic. Yes, I mean it just is. I mean the movie begins with Buddy Holly, and, yeah. and it only goes from there. So I mean it's it. I love love the 50s it's been about music. 10 years since I went I, well you remember I went through I read every single Stephen King yep. in order I remember chronologically it took me a year and a half and then after that I went back and watched all the movie adaptations um, in order and so that was the last time I think I watched Christine so I, I, I did skip a few I skipped I, I only watched novel adapt, adaptations so I didn't watch Maximum Overdrive okay that, that, that's that's fair so <laughs> outside of question for you outside of Carrie and The Shining, which of his earliest books would you say is the best adaptation? Hmm. Did you mention The Shining? You said Carrie. I and, said, okay, okay, yeah, okay. not okay. counting Carrie and The Shining. I mean, obviously those two are, that they stand much, much higher. Than, well, the, the original Salem's Lot was a, was a made for TV, but there was a remake with Rob Lowe, which was not too bad. That was also a miniseries, though. Was it? Okay. Yeah, that one was on, I forget what, it was one of the cable networks. Firestarter was okay. We had George C. Scott and, um, and Drew, Drew Barrymore. Barrymore. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't great. Um, how, how early? How, how, where can I go? Well, I'm, I'm saying let's, let's... The miniseries It, I thought, was very well done, but but not as well as the new right. hits. I, I guess I'm thinking, like, up to or through... Uh, let's, let's say the books, numerically, let's say going... Th- up to, see, I don't know the timeline, but just give me a year. I'm, well, I'm, okay, let's say through 1981. Oh, 81. See, if you went past that, we have Stand by Me. We have uh, Misery. Well, yeah, no, no, have, no, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like Cujo, Firestarter, Dead Zone. Um, you know, the the earliest of his works. You know, it's interesting. Cujo is not very well liked by King. Um, uh, he didn't like that one. He was 
on Coke pretty much the whole time when he wrote it. Um, he feels it's a very mean-spirited book. It doesn't have the kind of hope and charm that his other novels have. Um, I disagree. I, I like Cujo I a lot Cujo. Uh, as a book, and I thought the adaptation was really, really good. I enjoyed it. I love the concept of basically the entire thing taking place in a car. So I would have to say Cujo would be my favorite if you don't count Carrie and um, and Shining. Okay. Then we're in agreement. Okay. I would yeah. like Cujo mm-hmm. too. Yep. D-, D. Wallace, I thought, was brilliant as the mom with her asthmatic son in the car. I, yeah, I just... I love the only thing that I always wondered about that why did they go from why, why St. Bernard why didn't they stick with the German Shepherd I don't know I, I've always I've never looked it up or, maybe because the St. Bernard's a larger dog um, it's, I don't know the weight of a St. Bernard like laying on the window of a car may be scarier than a, than a German Shepherd that's true but a Shepherd would be much faster and much more difficult yeah, right. uh, well it is a Shepherd in the novel so but um, yeah I, I was always curious why the St. Bernard but I, I love Cujo the idea of man versus nature and this is not you know it's it just I don't know it, that novel just always he doesn't remember favorites. writing the novel he doesn't remember anything about writing that really? novel really yeah wow yeah if you didn't know King had some substance abuse issues in the 80s and uh, and cleaned up in the late 80s and has been cleaned since, uh, proving that it wasn't the, the drugs that made him a master storyteller. In fact, he, people would argue his, his works after his drug phase are much, much clearer and, yeah. and more epic. Although it's hard to argue with works like it and um, The Stand, of course, which are just oh, phenomenal. Yeah. All right. My other in, in question. In fact, real quick, yeah. mi- misery is, is an allegory of his giving up right. substance. Yeah. No, that, and, I, that and I knew. Representing yeah. the struggle where he finally became clean. Right. And he has so many authors in his books, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is very semi-autobiographical. Oh, yeah. I mean, Every other main character is a writer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have from... But from you Sa- write what you know. Yeah. From Salem's Lot to The Dark Half to The Shine, and the, just author after author. Yeah. yeah. Um, one last question, because, yeah. again, you knew about uh, The Talisman, and I did not. Okay. Following Christine, let's talk about the other one. From a Buick Gate, is there a movie coming? I, not you, that I know of. You haven't heard anything about from a no, uh-huh. okay? Yeah. That's that, that's Dark Tower related, very Dark Tower it, related. It is, yeah. yeah. But but it's still another film. I, I vaguely recall I heard something about a film years ago. And yeah. it just I I'd never heard of it. Not sure that would make a good feature film. Maybe a good short story. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one of my favorite books. Uh it felt like a Dark Tower kind of side side project. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just didn't know if you... He actually was inspired to write that. King is notorious for being afraid of flying. So he drives everywhere. And he lives part-time now in Florida uh, in the in the winters. He's a snowbird. And because he doesn't fly, um, you know, he drove out to Colorado when he was inspired to write The Shining. You right. know? And so he's driven a lot on the PA Turnpike. And I guess, which I drive the PA Turnpike a lot too in the summer. So I wish I would have run into it at some point. But he was in a rest stop on the PA Turnpike and he saw this police car down, like, I guess, uh, behind the bathroom somewhere. I don't know. It just was out of context. And that's what gave him the idea to write from mm-hmm. a Buick Gate. Okay. Sorry, this isn't a Stephen King podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you tell I would love to do one? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, like I said, I love King. I mean, but you you are far more the expert than me, so it's it's actually kind of fun. I've learned a lot about him tonight. All right, your turn. All right. Well, my next song is titled Goodbye Horses. It was written by songwriter William Garvey and performed by singer Q Lazarus, both of whom were bandmates in the band Q Lazarus and The Resurrection. And according to Friends of Garvey, um, they had a tumultuous relationship with one another. Q Lazarus disappeared from the public eye after... Uh, 
the release of this song, um, they just disbanded in 1996. Yeah, there's kind of a mystery as to what happened. To yeah, them. well, the, the entire. I, I always thought it was it's not, it's a band. I always thought it was just a. Um, it, it is actually the band is Q Lazarus and the Resurrection. Okay, Q Lazarus is the name of the singer. Yeah, uh, that's the the, right. the artist. And that's who disappeared. Kind that of. is who yeah. disappeared. Yeah, um, Q Lazarus actually just died. I, I was reading. Um, I don't remember what site I was on. Maybe the New York Times. Um, just uh, last week, and Q Lazarus apparently has died. Just in, she died twenty twenty two. Just in the last couple of months. Which I, I didn't even know she was still living to... Yeah, I, no one... She just disappeared completely. Um, the song comes from, or I should say it's used most prominently, in a film uh, that that uh, many of you probably have heard. We mentioned we, it we last We mentioned week. it last yeah. week. It is the only horror film to ever win Best Picture. It was a, a film by Jonathan Demme titled... Silence of the Lambs. It won Best Director. It won Best Actress. It won Best Actor. It won Best Screenplay. It yes. just tore it up. Yeah. I think it was 93. 90, I think it was 91. Mm, yeah, yeah, it could have been 91. You're right. 90, yeah, yeah, it was 91. Yeah, it was 91. Yep. Yeah, yep. 91. Um, yeah, the song is, how do you describe it? The song is a haunting, dreamlike, synth pop, dark wave. It's a cool song. Yeah, yeah I mean, it really is. It's synth pop, dark wave, new wave, dance. Yeah. Ballad, I like the song. You know? features Q Lazarus's androgynous vocals. I always thought that it, she was a man. I mean, honestly, but no, she's in fact, it, it's a female vocalist. Um, but it's, it's an androgynous voice with picked guitar and, and snare drums and drum pads. And it's very bare bones. It's very minimalistic. Although it, it swells mm -hmm. at, at times during during the, the recording. Um, Evan Saudi of Pop Matters wrote that Goodbye Horses had a strangely entrancing thump and sad, tragicomic elements in its lyrics, describing it as quirky. Um, to me, that was the best of the reviews I read because that's a, spot on. Yeah. It really is. Um, it, it's it's kind of gothy. It's, it's somber. Um, frankly, it's just a creepy song, but it's it's unlike anything else that was on the radio at the time. I mean, Q Lazarus is definitely a one-hit wonder. What was the year? Uh, the actual recording was 
86. Because I don't remember the song when it was out. I just remember it from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, no, it came out in 86. It it was first featured, it first got uh, some attention in 1988. And I'll give the history of okay, how that yeah, happened here yeah. in a moment. Um, but um, it, it's rumored that the song's lyrics were based uh, on transcendence over those who see the world as only earthly and finite, with the horses in the song representing the five senses from Hindu philosophy. So there's a lot going on in this song. It's it's actually very dark, and it's meant to kind of talk about, uh, you know, death and, and praying for death. It, it, it gets really, really kind of bizarre. Um, in the 1980s, Q Lazarus, the the vocalist, the singer, uh, she worked as a taxi driver in New York City and was unsigned with record labels, allegedly turning her away due to her dreadlocks, uh, in fact. Um, one day in 1985, she picked up director Jonathan Demme and producer Arthur Baker in her taxi during a blizzard after the two had finished doing the final mix on Little Steven's music video for her song Sun City. And after dropping off Baker, Q Lazarus asked Demi if he was in the music business, then proceeded to play uh, her demo tape, which included a demo of Goodbye Horses. After listening to the tape, Demi was so impressed that he, he remembers telling her, oh my God, what is this and who are you? Goodbye Horses quickly became a cult uh, hit after Demi used it in a scene from The Silence of the Lambs. It is, some people consider it to be one of the most famous, some people say it is the most important, uh, most memorable scene uh, from the film. Uh, it's the scene where the film's antagonist, serial killer Buffalo Bill, portrayed by Ted Levine, he puts on makeup in the mirror, he plays with his nipple ring, while his victim Catherine cries in a pit. After he says a, something we won't uh, Yeah, I'm not going to give you the, Yeah, I'm not going to repeat that. Um, but basically, as the song plays, Buffalo Bill begins dancing naked into a video camera, and he tucks... His, yeah, his, a little bit of tuckage there. Yeah, he Go tucks uh, between his legs to see himself as a woman. Okay, it's it's very famous scene. Goodbye Horses was not actually in the script, though. Other songs uh, were first uh, considered, including songs by David Bowie and Mick Jagger. Um, the scene was originally rehearsed to her strut by Bob Seger. I can't remember. I can't. <laughs> I can't fathom any of these songs being used. But uh, "Goodbye Horses" was eventually chosen for it, with Levine actually saying that it became a little gentler and stranger, and a little bit more feminine as a result of the song that they chose. Before using "Goodbye Horses" in the Silence of the Lambs, Demi actually included it on the soundtrack for his 1988 film "Marriage to the Mob." But its inclusion in the Silence of the Lambs helped the song reach iconic status. Since the Silence of the Lambs, I mean, the scene itself has been parodied uh, in an episode of Family Guy in which Chris Griffin dances to the white horses. <laughs> uh, the song appears in a scene from the 2006 film Clerks 2 mm -hmm. in which Jay and Silent Bob, played by Jason Mewes and, and Kevin Smith, respectively, they, they parody the Silence of the Lambs scene. It was also used in another parody of the scene from the 2019 spiritual successor of Clerks 2, which was Jay and Silent Bob reboot. The song appeared in the 2012 slasher film Maniac, the CBS television series Clarice, which was a spinoff of the movie, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Um, it was also featured in the video games Grand Theft Auto 4 and, and Skate 3. This song just, it, it has a life of its well, own. Well, it has a cult following. It does. It's become iconic, and it's, it's now kind of everywhere. 
The inclusion of Goodbye Horses in the Silence of the Lambs, though, it immortalized the song as a classic. And Levine's performance as Buffalo Bill is forever linked to the song. Uh, it, it adds an extra layer of eeriness uh, to what many consider to be the indelible shot of the film, the tuck, where, you know, Bill steps back and looks into the mirror in self-admiration. That scene paired with this song has become a pop cultural touchstone. To, to just give you a list here, Stereo Gum, Rolling Stone, Time Out, Entertainment Weekly, Pitchfork, Flavorwire, NME, and the New York Times, they have all included this song in their lists of the best uses of songs in movies. Hmm. It's made all of their lists. And for those who may be interested, this was really cool. As of 2021, the house in Periopolis, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. that was used as Buffalo Bill's home in the film, it is actually a vacation rental on Airbnb. Oh. And when, I bet you there's no basement. Uh, and Uh-oh. when visitors enter the basement, Goodbye Horses begins playing and a disco ball lights up. <laughs> That's cool. Above the pit. There is a pit, though. That's what it said. That's, uh, I, mean, I can see there being a basement, but yeah, there is a pit. In my notes, that's, that's what it said. Um, that may be... That may not be true, but I know that definitely, because I saw it on three different sites, that, yeah, the song begins playing, the disco ball drops, and, yeah, there is a basement. Oh, that's cool. I would love... We should make a trip. Yeah, I would We're love in PA. To I wonder if it's close uh, it's to the... Per- Periopolis. If it's closer to Philly or Pittsburgh, but if it's that, closer to Pittsburgh, then I don't know. check it out. But, yeah, Periopolis, I would love to spend the night in Buffalo Bill's house. How yeah. cool would that be? So... Without Buffalo Bill there. With, without Buffalo Bill there. Yes. Yeah, and Precious. I'm, I'm not a big fan of poodles. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Bring your lotion. Yeah. All right. <laughs> or it gets the hose. Yes. <laughs> so, your turn. All right. My next one is uh, Mad World, which was originally a Tears for Fear song. And the cover version of it was used in the movie Donnie Darko. Maybe we're playing a little loose with horror film. I don't know what you would consider Donnie Darko, um, which is kind of the charm of the film, because I don't know what you would consider it. Definitely science fiction with the time travel. 
but it but it definitely hit a, a cult status um, shortly after its release. I don't know if it did well in the box office, but I don't know. It, it might be one of those films that really got its second life on video. Right. right. Um, I I absolutely say it's horror. Yeah. But but it's definitely sci-fi. Well, I, one of my things, okay, in addition to bats that scare me, are giant human-sized bipedal rabbits. So even Harvey, like you, and then, Jimmy well, Stewart, you can't sit through. <laughs> and this is something that you would not relate to because of, of your faith. Oh, uh, but, the Easter but, Bunny. But, but I'm pretty convinced if anyone has ever seen pictures of what the Easter Bunny costumes look like in the 70s. Yeah, I've seen those. Maybe that's where it comes from. Uh, but there are other movies that have used like rabbit masks, you know, um, just any time I see, uh, just very unsettling to me. And so Donnie Darko really, really freaked me out. So for Christmas this year, can I can I go full on Ralphie and buy you a pink bunny suit? Uh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it'd be kind of cool to hang up as a decoration there for Christmas. Go. So this is version um, was by Gary Jules and Michael Andrews, and it just it, the song itself is a great song, but and, and their version is creepier. But it really was made creepy in this mind-blowing 80s, well, it was set in the 80s, in this 2001 film, Donnie Darko. Um, the song itself was inspired by Duran Duran's Girls on Film, uh, Tears for Fears frontman Roland uh, Orzabal penned the song when he was only 19 years old. The song was released as a single in 2003, so even though it, it came out originally in 83, and it may have been a single at the time, I don't believe it was a hit. It was prior to their songs from the Big Chair record, which was huge in America. Um, but in 2003, later on, most likely because of the film, it went on to number one on the UK charts uh, for three weeks in a row. Huh. The Tears for Fears version of it. But this version is a, it's the cover, like I mentioned. Uh, it, it replaces the new wave synthesizers um, of the original for this kind of softer piano. There's a cello in there. Anytime you have a haunting cello, it makes it creepy, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, and it just... It was just perfect um, for the film. And so you just watched Donnie Darko recently, yeah, right? Just I, I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I had not seen it in probably 20 years. And what did you think? Does it still hold up? Oh, it holds up wonderfully. Um, and I had forgotten everyone that was in this film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I remember Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal, obviously. I remember Drew Barrymore. Noah Wiley, I had forgotten about from ER. Um, Seth Rogen, a very young mm -hmm. Seth Rogen. Um Patrick Swayze is it? I, I just I all these celebrities kept appearing in the film one after the other, and I'm like I had no memory of all of these. Now, in, in my defense, like Seth Rogen, no one knew who. I mean, unless you were a freaks and right. geeks guy, right. you know, no one knew who that was. But I, it just yeah, it is an all star cast, and it just it holds up remarkably well. Well, it, I love it too because it's one of the first movies that I can recall that was set in the 80s. Yeah. But attempted to do a realistic version of the 80s with just little things here and there. I believe the father, isn't the father reading it? Yeah. Uh, those types of little nods were really cool. Yeah. And it's, and you know, the fashions are, are authentic. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not the 80s as, you know, millennials and Gen Zers believe the 80s to look, right. you know. Um, it's, you know, it's just a kid on his bike, he keeps sleepwalking. And of course, the ending is so tragic, you know. But but it's and Jenna Malone, mm -hmm. I had forgotten she played the girlfriend. I mean, it, it just it, it is if it's a, it holds up, it really does. Um, I loved it, yeah, because I rewatched it. I, I I remember Donnie Darko. I remembered the the plot of Donnie Darko, but I didn't remember the intricate details, and I didn't know how much we were going to discuss the film. So I did. I watched it again, and 
I'm glad I did. I had forgotten how much I loved this movie. I mean, it, it has reached cult status for a, for a reason. It's been a while since I watched it. I almost watched it again just to make sure that uh, it would fit the horror. I didn't know if I was the only one that was horrified by it because of the rabbit or if it really did have that vibe. It does have that vibe. I don't know that it's the rabbit. I mean, the rabbit is the rabbit's creepy because it's it looks like a monster it's rabbit yeah <laughs> but but um and it's not bugs bunny it's six flags you know right. but but it it just it's definitely just the, the very pretense of the film i mean once you get to that point about three quarters of the way through the film and you you can almost see the dominoes falling you right. know you know how this is going to end sure. and then when it does it's just so it's it's tragic but the the creepiness factor as it gets to that point it it's yeah, I, I I say it definitely deserves a place on this list. Awesome, definitely. Right. You have two more, I believe. Right? Two more, right. yes. And this one was a late edition. I I almost did not include this. I didn't think about it until literally last night. Um, but once I had it in my mind, I couldn't let it go. Um, very happy that I thought of it. Actually, the the song is called After Dark, and it is by. Uh, the band Tito and Tarantula. Tarantism from 1997. Um, let me take a step back, though, because I didn't know the history uh, of the band, and it's it's actually pretty pretty prolific. Tito Lariva, and I'm going to guess that should be a rolled R, but I've never been able to roll my R's. There you go. You can substitute for me. Uh, he began his music career by playing in some of the first Latino punk bands, such as the Impalas, the Flesh Eaters, most notably the Plugs. Uh, but when the plugs disbanded in 84, Lariva formed the Cruzados. Uh, and with this new band, his music began to move in a different direction, straying from his typical punk rock to a bluesier 80s rock sound. Um, the Cruzados, um, they, they were critically acclaimed and they opened for big acts like NXS and Fleetwood Mac. They released a self-titled album made in 85 uh, and had uh, another album following 87, but they disbanded in 88. The Cruzados, uh, they also performed the song Don't Throw Stones, which you can hear at the beginning of the 1989 movie Roadhouse. Um, but from there, Lariva continued writing film music. Starting in 92, 
He and guitarist Peter Atanasov, they celebrated with various friends at live weekly jam sessions in the cafes and clubs of L.A. at big spontaneous parties. The band at that time was simply known as Tito and Friends, but a friend told Tito that uh, the band really needed a name and suggested Tito and Tarantula. The band agreed and it stuck. So by 95, officially called Tito and Tarantula, the band recorded the songs Back to the House that Love Built, Strange Face of Love, and White Train, which made their debut in Robert Rodriguez's film Desperado. Tito had met Rodriguez when filming Desperado, and during the mixing of the film, Tito was playing a previously written song that just happened to be about vampires, which caught the ear of Rodriguez. He mentioned that his next film was about vampires and asked if he could videotape the song acoustically. One week later, Tito was informed that he and his band had now been written into the upcoming film from dusk till dawn, primarily to have actress Salma Hayek dance to the previously heard song in a scene. And to satisfy Quentin Tarantino's very obvious foot fetish. Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) I had forgotten about that. You know, there's so much about his use of women's feet in his movies, and it's it's just kind of a funny thing. But then I rewatched this scene um, before this uh, broadcast, and I just, I laughed out loud. I'm like, okay, there it is. If anyone thought it was overblown, there it is. Yes. Her, her, I'm not sure if it was Salma Hayek's actual leg because it was cut close, but some woman's foot is directly in Tarantino's mouth when she's pouring some type of alcoholic substance down her leg. Yeah. Now, from what I read, um, it, the body shots are all her. Okay. It's, it's actually Salma Hayek. Um, because I was looking for the name of the model and I, I couldn't couldn't find one anywhere. Yeah, um, yeah the, the movie from Dust Till Dawn, and this is one of the most iconic, It's not only is it one of the most iconic stripper scenes in, in, <laughs> in cinema, but when she comes out, she has the boa constrictor around her and she begins stripping. It's just before they lock the doors and the vampire, you know, the vampirism begins. Um, it, it's one of the most iconic introductions of a vampire, I think, in film. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't say From Dust Till Dawn is one of the greatest of vampire flicks, but it's certainly, I, it has Rodriguez, it has Tarantino. I mean, this is a, it was a better concept than a movie. The movie's yes, okay. Yes, but when, exactly. You, but when you hear the elevator pitch, you're like, oh man, this is going to be incredible. Yeah. And maybe it fell short of that a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, it just, it, there's such, the moment you add Rodriguez and Tarantino to a discussion, to me, the layer of cred, the, the layer of coolness just goes, it goes through the roof. So, and you have Tarantino as an actor, which, you know, he pretty much plays himself. He does. Everything. Yeah, he plays Tarantino. And you have Juliette Lewis and you have Harvey Cattell, of course, George Clooney. Yep. Some Hayek we already mentioned. Yeah, great cast. Oh, it's fantastic. So, yeah, when this came to me last night, I was like, I've, I've got to use this. Um, so, yeah, I basically what, you know, they, they end up, they, they actually play the, uh, the house band uh, in the film that they they play the house band at the Titty Twister, which is the name of the strip club, um, and yeah, Sama Hayek's performance there. I mean, it's just it, it's just so it's iconic. Cheech Marin. Oh my! I forgot he <laughs> was actually. I forgot he was in it. Yeah, <laughs> which um, we will not repeat what he says. Yeah, keep um, it family friendly. We've we've kind of gone to the edge a couple times on this episode. We have, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so the band also recorded three other songs for the film. Um, in, or three songs total, After Dark, which I already named, as well as Angry Cockroaches and Opening Boxes. 
uh, after, after dark, as we've said, it it plays during Summer Hayek's uh, exotic dance number, but it would also play in a Spanish in Spanish during a recreation of that number in From Dust Till Dawn the series. You remember the TV I don't, series? Uh-uh. Yeah, there was a TV series based on the film. It lasted, I think, two seasons. I started watching it. The first season wasn't bad, but then what it, network was it? I knew you were going to ask. Like it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I, th- I think it was TNT or FX. Okay, so it was it was it was cable, but it wasn't. It was the the, the midland between cable and broadcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, the song is also the theme song of that TV series, which has long since been canceled. Um, but uh, Tito himself has scored several films previously, uh, including a couple of films in Germany, a film titled "Just a Little Harmless Sex," which I I am unfamiliar with. Um, he also uh, scored the, the the cult hit film uh, Repo Man, mm. which surprised me. I didn't know that. Uh, at some point, more and more people came to see them, and, and after they did Desperado and From Tusk Till Dawn, it became clear that something big was happening. So in 97, Tito and Tarantula made its long-awaited album debut with Tarantism, which is where you can find this song. Um, and yeah, they, they're still together and still recording. And and he still apparently is writing scores and songs for for a number of films. So, I I knew nothing about them. I thought it was just, I, I Rodriguez like Tarantino like Jordan Peele last week. They pull they pull songs that very very obscure or very forgotten songs mm-hmm. often. Yeah. So this one, I mean, it has almost a rockabilly mm-hmm. feel. There's a bluesy uh, blues guitar riff with with percussion that's just kind of. You know, very lazy percussion, but it's it's a driving almost. Well, it it's almost a sexual rhythm, which makes sense for the striptease. But I I, I love the song and forgotten all about it. And once I once I thought of it, I, I just I couldn't let it go. So last night I swapped out another song and decided we're going with from Dust Till Dawn. Great choice. So, yeah, there I you go. I have to go back. I have that one on Blu-ray too. I have all of Tarantino's on Blu-ray. I need to. And then, of course, their other project they worked on together. Well, they did. I think they worked on four rooms together. But then, of uh, course, um, it was Death Proof and, and Planet, uh, X. Planet X. Yeah, double feature. Yep. All right, my last one, and this song may uh, stand out above all else on this playlist uh, because it really doesn't fit anywhere. So good luck uh, us trying to sequence this one. But I had to include "Hip to Be Square" by Huey Lewis and the News from 1986, that later appeared in the movie. American Psycho.
folks, if you have not seen American Psycho, um, it's, I'm not saying go out and see it. It's not for everybody. Um, it's, it's pretty brutal. But at least watch, uh, go on YouTube and watch the, just type in like Huey Lewis uh, in the news and American Psycho and the scene will pop up. But Christian Bale uh, plays this psycho. Uh, and in preparation of murdering Jerk Leto's character, um, goes on to this. Actually, it sounds like something we would do. Not, not, not the murder, right? <laughs> no. But uh, the pre-murder, where he just goes into this whole critique of yeah. Huey Lewis in the news, commentary of the music. It's yeah. hilarious, and you know, talks about how their early stuff is a little too new wave for him, and you know, really came into their own at sports. And then goes on and then mentions how the song Hip to be Square is a perfect song because uh, it's also a statement on the band itself. And then he goes on a killing, uh, not a spree, but yeah. he takes care of his, his guest yeah. in his apartment there. Is that a raincoat? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have a newspaper on the floor? Um, yeah, yeah. So how would this upbeat 80s Huey Lewis number be in any way considered creepy? Um, if you've seen this song, then the song completely changes its meaning. <laughs> Uh, for you. Uh, the song's original meaning derived from Hugh Lewis's observation at his generational counterparts. Of course, he's a boomer and grew up in the 60s. And how in the 80s, they're cutting their hair to fit in nicely into the fabric of ordinary society. Um, but the, really, the main, kind of the wide interpretation maintains that it's just kind of an ode to normalness. It works both ways, right? As many songs do. Uh, the song originally appeared on the soundtrack to the film, but as soon as Huey Lewis realized that his song was being used in such a dark con uh, context, he was successful in having all the copies removed from store shelves and had a, a, a reissue of the soundtrack that did not include Hip to be Square. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, um, that surprises me. Yeah, me, me a little bit too. I, I, hmm. I mean, especially this far removed, I wonder if he, if that's a decision he regrets because there was a lot of copyright a uh, lot, of, lot of royalties money that he that's true. lost yeah. out on yeah that's true um, so yeah if you if you haven't seen American Psycho and it's a great 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 movie I have the book I have not read the book yet it's on my shelf um, but um, it's definitely and it's, it's satirical of course um, it's not just brutality for brutality's sake right. there's a lot being said about um, our culture in the 80s and, and commerce and capitalism and all that type of stuff too with it but um, yeah I think I, we would have been amiss if we did include Hip to be Square in this context yeah no it, it had to be there not one of my favorite Hugh Lewis songs by the way no not one of mine either um, just you know the idea of you know uh, an older man deciding to start taking care of himself. I mean, that's, that's basically basically the song in a nutshell. Right. So, um, yeah. Now he's eating well and working out. Yay. But I think <laughs> it does make sense in his original context. Oh, like, it does. Like I yeah. just watched um, Woodstock, the entire film, the, expended, the director's cut uh, this week. I was just in the mood to watch it. And uh, I just I forget how good that film is because it's not just a concert film. Um, the filmmakers take so much time to show the story of how the festival became a thing and, and the setting up of the festival and the people that went there, interviewing then and now some of the attendees at Woodstock. And it is, it's funny to think that so many of those hippies turned into Trump supporters, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, like the whole baby boom generation did a complete 180. It's like Don Henley's, you know, I saw a deadhead dead sticker on, on a Cadillac. Cadillac. I, I, I was just thinking that from too. From Boys, uh, Boys of Summer. So yeah. I think Hip to be Square would fit along those lines, like like Lewis intended. Yep. No, I agree. 
It's a great choice. Um, all right, so my number 12. I decided to close my list with Midnight, the Stars, and You. Mm, great, great, great. It is a 1934 song written by Harry M. Woods and performed by Ray Noble and his orchestra with vocals by an uncredited Al Bowley. And it appears on the album of the same name. I choose to end with this well this song ends the 1980 horror film The Shining ends it and also appears I believe the first time he enters the ballroom yes I think it's played uh, that, yeah, yeah that, that is true um, but, it, but it, it it's played at the end of The Shining during the enigmatic ending that states that Jack Torrance was always the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel it also appears during the credits of the film's 2019 sequel Dr. Sleep and for good measure, it also plays in the background of the Shining scene in the 2018 film Ready Player One. So everything Shining-related on film has incorporated this particular big band staple. Now, yeah, Dave's not the only one that pulled from Stephen King. I had I had my one. <laughs> well, you pulled you pulled arguably the greatest King adaptation. Yes, um, which, which is a contention with King, but that's yeah. a whole other thing. Now, you know, Kubrick's film adaptation of The Shining is so different from the novel. So much so that Stephen King's hatred for the movie is well documented. I mean, it's it's understandable. Kubrick asked for freedom to change whatever he wanted, and he wasn't kidding. And although King didn't oppose to that at the time, he wasn't expecting Kubrick to go so far as to change the essence of the book. Um, because of that, the Shining book and the movie, uh, they're really just very different entities. And, and the you know details that are explained, or at least easier to interpret in the novel, are either not included or left very ambiguous in the film. And among those is the ending and some of the scenes that come moments before that final shot of the photo of Jack Nicholson's character in 1921. Well, because in the the book, the overlook is is destroyed. It blows up. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, fan theories are never ending for Kubrick's film. You know, what this film is about. Some people argue the entirety of the film is all about the hoax of the... The moon landing. The the moon landing. That that Kubrick directed that, right? Some people say that the entire thing is about Native American genocide. And some people say it's all about um, sexual abuse. Well, if you haven't seen, yeah, the movie... um, 237? Yeah, 237, which is a documentary about all the different theories. I think it's on Netflix. Yeah, and it's just... Or 320... No, it's 237. Is it 237? Yeah, Yeah, because that's another thing. Cooper changed the room number as well. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's uh, room 237, which the, the hotel that is used for the Overlook, it actually does have its own haunted legacy, but it's room 217 
at that particular hotel. I think that might have been the, the, the actual... Yeah, that's the number the King, I believe, uses as well. Because as I mentioned earlier uh, in the episode, King was on vacation with his wife, and they went to Colorado and stayed in this hotel. And that's where he got this idea of doing a haunted hotel story. Right. And I think he had heard some stories from, from people there as well. So Yeah. It's one of the few that doesn't take place in Maine. Correct. <laughs> yeah, almost all of them do. Um, but yeah, fan theories, I mean, they're never-ending, okay? Um, but that final shot in the movie, that adaptation, that 1921 photograph uh, showing Jack with other guests in the hotel's ballroom, this scene has been interpreted so many ways. And, and one of the most popular explanations is that it represents the hotel absorbing Jack's soul. Although this makes sense, Kubrick himself has said that the photo actually suggests that Jack is being a reincarnation of an earlier official. That's how I always took it. Yeah. And he said this makes sense, you know, when going back to his conversation with Grady in the in the bathroom, where the butler tells Jack that he has always been the caretaker. It also fits with the, the role of both Grady characters mentioned in the film, because the past caretaker was Grady, as was the ghost. The ghost is Delbert Grady, and the, the past caretaker was Charles Grady. Charles Grady was the one that uh, Jack says he saw in the newspaper. Uh, the one that killed his family in the hotel with an axe. Right. Um, and, and thus the reincarnation of Delbert Grady. So, yeah, Kubrick, I mean, he kind of failed in adapting Stephen King's book, but he succeeded in making a film full of metaphors and symbolism that have made way for countless interpretations of its true meaning. Um, arguably, it is the greatest Stephen King adaptation, although it does not adapt the book. In, I mean, it's it's so... So far well, away. it's not quite as a loose translation as Lawnmower Man. Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I like to forget that. I like to think that never happened. But um, yeah, but nonetheless, I mean, there, there's just oh, so there's so many countless interpretations of, of what this movie means, you know. And of course, there there are some that are more convincing and coherent than others. But at its core, I've always thought The Shining, the book and the film, really are just about violence and abuse and, and how they're they're often cyclical, you know. Um, and, you know, as far as how Jack's legacy uh, or how, you know, what happens to him at the end of the film, the Shining novel and the film work best as separate pieces. And, and each ending has a different meaning. The sequel to The Shining, um, 2019's Dr. Sleep movie, you've seen Dr. Sleep. Yeah, yeah, and I was going to talk about that. Yeah, it, it walks you know, a delicate tightrope. It had to, because like you said, the novel ends different. The, right. the Overlook is destroyed. Jack is, is, is dead, is killed. And I uh, believe, um, uh, no, did they, they both escape in the novel and the, I'm trying um, to think here. In the novel, Halloran lives. Yes. And he, uh, the hotel tries to, um, tries to take him one more time, but he, he manages to right, run it off. Right, and right. he takes Wendy and Danny to the snow cat and they, all three yeah. escape. Like you were saying, so so the novel itself was huge when it was published, bestseller, of course. And the novel is probably in my top five favorite Stephen King novels, okay? Yeah. It's just excellent in its own right. The adaptation, right, like you mentioned, no secret that King hated it. Now, I've seen different reasons as to why he hated it. Um, one, one reason is just, to me, pretty basic, and I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, he wanted more jump scares, which seems a little bit trivial to me. Like the famous scene where, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, and when Sally Duvall's character, she's reading this, realizing that he's gone crazy, yeah. and he sneaks up behind her. Um, Kubrick has him way in the distance, so you could tell 
that he's behind her. King said he would have had it, so it was more of a jump scare moment. I'm sure it's more than that. I'm sure maybe just as a young writer, King was learning that you have to really put in the contract how much of the source material you control. And like John Grisham had the same issue. He was very upset with the way the the firm came out. Mm -hmm. And he realized after that that contractually you have to make sure that he had more input into the script. But yeah, it's one of those weird phenomenon that the, the book and the movie became their own pop culture giants, right? In fact, to the point where King tried to set the score straight in the, I believe it was in the late 90s, where he did Stephen King's The Shining, Shining yeah. which was a miniseries that was very, very true to the book, Yes, but did not work at all. No. In the way that it although, was just the book I, on film. I did like Rebecca Mornay as, yeah. as uh, Wendy, mm-hmm. but after you see Shelley Duvall yeah, in character, right. there, there can't be And I'm sorry, movie. what's his name from Wings? I can't remember the actor's name. Oh, um, yeah. But he plays the lead. Again, he's, he's no Jack yeah, Torrance. Yeah, no, he's not. Now, he, he, I think King did that deliberately because Jack Torrance in the book is just supposed to be, you know, this writer, teacher who has a alcohol problem. And whereas Jack Nicholson already has that creepy vibe. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, but it just, it just didn't work cinematically. Again, King was off on that. He was wrong. He should have embraced, I think it was just a control issue. It was a pride issue. Yeah, well, the one thing that I've always read is that he felt that Kubrick did not treat Jack Torrance as a sympathetic character. Okay, yeah. Because he said that in the book, Jack Torrance is is incredibly sympathetic. He is a man who is flawed. Yes, he, he turns violent. He has a history of abuse with breaking Danny's arm and, and whatnot with the alcoholism. But he still is sympathetic in that he knows he's doing wrong and he's trying. He's trying so hard. Right. Yeah. And that's why he sacrifices himself in the end of the book. Right. Yeah. For his family. That's his arc. Yeah. And but and and actually, we just got done talking about how King, a lot of King is autobiographical. I mean, this was written when King was drinking heavily. Right. And he, he, there was no child abuse, but he was very, had some strong words for his his young child. Yeah. And realized the monster that alcohol made him. And that kind of, that seed grew into Jack Torrance's character. But now, because you have these two big pop culture giants, when King wrote Dr. Sleep, which sequel came out, what? 2012-ish around, maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It could be off. Time's weird for me now. We, the the novel was a sequel to his novel, was not a sequel to Kubrick's film. Right. Correct. And so when Ewan McGregor um, was cast in, in, in the film version of the sequel, that was my biggest question. Is, is the film going to be a sequel to the novel or to the movie? And like you said, they did a nice job of blending the two. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I'm... They recreated the, the Overlook. Oh, I know. It was and, awesome. And it, almost to the letter. In fact, Henry Thomas, you know, Elliot from E.T., he actually plays Jack Nicholson in the film adaptation of, of uh, Dr. Sleep. And he looks, pr- he looks really yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, eerily close to Nicholson. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of Jack, whether or not he's, you know, what happens to him at the end? Like, in, in the Dr. Sleep film... When the overlook uh, is is there, if you will, um, yeah, Jack Nicholson is now I mean, basically he's Lloyd the bartender, mm-hmm. and it's very clear that there's no good left in this, you know, in this paranormal presence that the overlook is basically because the overlook's not even there; it just it's there and right. as, as a haunted yeah. entity. Yeah. So basically, yeah, I mean, he he basically. You know, Jack Torrance, the man, is gone, and it, it, he is just pure evil. Right. But then, in that, you know, interestingly, in in 
the Stephen King's The Shining miniseries that you were you were talking about, there's an epilogue uh, to that miniseries where they show after Danny's graduation, Jack Torrance in in ghost form, smiling, just beaming and with pride at his son. You know that there. You remember that scene? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so it's like. Yeah, and they're, they're so different. And, you know, what truly happens to Jack? How is he in the photo in, in 1921? Just everything about this movie, I, you know, separate from the book, obviously, but the movie itself, whatever the hell Kubrick was doing, he, he was a genius. Because oh, he, he was a genius. He was literally aging. Yeah, well, yeah, because here we are 42 years later and everyone still analyzes I don't think there's a more analyzed horror film in history right. than The Shining and it's just it's so much more than a horror film oh it is yeah I just, in fact I just watched 2001 Space Odyssey this huh. week and I finally saw I finally watched the sequel 2010 it was actually very good I've never seen 2010 Kubrick had nothing to do with it but it's based on the characters um, it's, it's a direct sequel to 2001 so it's a direct sequel to Arthur C. Clarke's Yes, Arthur Look. C. Clarke actually wrote it. So oh, Arthur okay. C. Clarke was okay. involved. But it's about the crew. But basically, Earth sends another crew to find out what happened to the first crew. Hmm. And it's really, really well done. Um, not, not on the same level as Kubrick's. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah, it was just yeah, a good, good yeah. movie. Um, I will t- this is a controversial take. So to say that The Shining movie, Kubrick's version, is better than Stephen King's version is not controversial. I think Dr. Sleep, the movie, is better than the book. That's controversial. Because I have just got done saying over and over and over that King is much better. Now, King didn't write the screenplay for, for Dr. Sleep, but Dr. Sleep, for me, as a book, didn't work as well. Um, mainly because I didn't like Rose the Hat in the book as a villain. It just, for whatever reason, it, it didn't work for me. I didn't like it. Uh, there were parts of it I liked a lot, but I just didn't like her. I forget the name of the actress, but the actress that portrays Rose the Hat in the movie pulled it off perfectly. And Hugh McGregor played it perfectly. And the way that they combined both the book and the original um, Kubrick version of the movie was perfect. Yeah. And I don't know that I'll ever read Dr. Sleep again, but I will definitely watch the movie again. Well, the actress is Rebecca Ferguson. Yes, yes. Um, she is great. She, yeah. I, I Here's the thing. I've never read Dr. Sleep. I, like I said, in the last 10 years, I've really... I've, I've kind of fallen off. Because I used to keep up and read every novel by King that came out as it came out. And... Now it's there. There are easily probably twenty books that I've not read because well, I, just, I can recommend ones that you should read for others if okay. you ever want me to. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll get there. Yeah, and this I, would be an example of I, I would not put Doctor Sleep up there as high as some okay. of his more recent ones. Yeah, because I've not read it, but the film, I, I Rose the Hat was I, I loved yeah. this character. She's great. She's great loved this movie. character, um, and yeah, I just I don't know I. I almost because I swapped out a, a song to include After Dark for for uh, you know for Dust Till Dawn. I almost swapped with Midnight the Stars and You. The only reason I kept this song in it's not for the song. I wanted to discuss The Shining. Oh, and, there you go. <laughs> you know, I wanted to discuss The Shining, so I, I pulled out the the other song. But um, yeah, I it just The Shining is without question my favorite horror film. Um. Is it the scariest of my favorites? No. Is it the, uh, you know, it, it's, it doesn't have the jump scares. It doesn't have the. It's hypnotic. It, it is. It's like 2001. It's like, uh, well, a lot of Kubrick's, not all of them. Yeah. But a lot. 
It, eyes wide shut. It, it's hypnotic. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had to include my favorite horror film just for the discussion of it. Um, but but it's just, yeah, I I don't know. I think it'd be a perfect way to end the playlist. Definitely. Though. I mean, it's, it, it just has that vibe for, you know, the, the close of, of anything, really. So we probably should sequence and see where it goes. I want to keep talking about The Shining, can, but you're we, right. We can no, do that yeah, you're too. Right, you're right. You're right. We need to keep. He has. He has <laughs> what? Like another fifty novels we haven't talked about yet. So. Well, just even specifically The Shining. Like I'm just. I, I'm enamored by that question that we just briefly touched upon. You know, the difference between the book and Kubrick's movie, and how King hated it so much. And uh, but the, the funny thing is, if you pull Stephen King fans, they'll say the same thing. Um, they like. Kubrick's version just as much as they like the novel. Yeah. And it's one of those times where, you know, his fan base, Stephen King's fan base, disagrees with King. Right. And I think now it's pride to this point. I think when he was young and he just was upset because it didn't turn out the way he thought it would, I think to this point, the only two movies that have been made, I think Carrie, obviously, was well received and well done by Brian De Palma. And then the made for TV. um, Sales Lot. And I think he just thought, boy, this one has a potential to be a huge great classic horror movie and when it's turned into more of that more than that you know that was just the surface level I think he was disappointed yeah which is ironic given that it's the best remembered the, the most loved and the, the most critically acclaimed of any of his adaptations still to this day even down to I'm trying to think I'm a little sketchy on the details here but there's um, when they're driving and they drive past a, a Volkswagen Beetle that's in the snow off the side of the road uh, that was the original car in the novel, and it was Kubrick's way of saying, um, "Yeah, nothing sacred here. I'm changing everything." And King saw that kind of as like a middle finger. I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I guess when you get two geniuses, uh, t- yeah. And King is a genius, but 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 um, Kubrick. Oh, Kubrick. He was a master chess player. Yeah. Um, his methods were controversial in the fact that he had people do 40, 50, 60 takes to oh, the point where they were broken yeah. emotionally. How, how he treated Shelley Duvall in, in the it's filming awful. of this movie is... It's hard to argue with the results, but he was not an, uh, an yeah, actor-friendly he, director. Yeah, he physically, emotionally, and verbally abused. Right. She, I mean, she stopped acting. Right. After, after and the And that's shot. what he wanted, but yeah. there's some ethical concerns. Yeah, he, he broke her right. so badly that she stopped. She she called, called it quits on her. The actors have, have just these stories of having even a hundred times going through the scene over and over again to the point where, and that's what he wants. He wants you to stop acting. He wants you to, it, it's, it's a method, right? Yeah. But, wow. Yep. Okay, anyway, let's sequence these. Yes. We will be right back. And we're back. What's the sequence here? Read them off for us, Alan. Well, um, a lot of these songs were not easy to, to sequence. <laughs> so we actually have two very different sides uh, to our mixtape. Side one kind of rocks out a bit. It begins with Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. And that goes into Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus, into Mad World by Michael Andrews and Gary Jules. Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, followed by Hip to Be Square by Huey Lewis and the News. That is followed by Lost in the Shadows, The Lost Boys by Lou Graham. Who Made Who by ACDC. Dream Warriors by Dawkin. Into Pet Cemetery by The Ramones, followed by... Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny, and we end side A with After Dark by Tito and Tarantula. Side B begins with Science Fiction Double Feature by Richard O'Brien. That goes into The Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash. You're Dead by Norma Tanega, and To Tiptoe Through the Tulips with Me by Tiny Tim. 
Run Rabbit Run by Flanagan and Allen, Into Banana Boat Day O by Harry Belafonte, We Belong Together by Robert and Johnny, followed by Blue Moon by the Marcells, Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes, Into Singing in the Rain by Gene Kelly, Putting on the Ritz from the ensemble cast of Young Frankenstein, and we end our mixtape with Midnight the Stars and You by Ray Noble and his orchestra featuring Al Bowley on vocals. Great, great mixtape. Again, um, all this one, it, it needs some context. So the first two Halloween episodes we did, you don't need any context, right? The first one, they were fun songs for Halloween. The second one, they were creepy, whether or not you, you know, saw any movies that may have been associated with them. This one, I think some of the songs will be creepy regardless. But I mean, if you're listening to this one to kind of get a Halloween in the Halloween mood, and you haven't seen American Psycho and Hit to Be Square comes up, <laughs> right. it might break that mood a little bit, but that's okay. I mean, we were willing to kind of take it a step further this time and either assume some uh, audience knowledge of these movies, and if not, it just may not be a playlist you want to listen to. What are we going to name this particular episode? I mean, do we have something? Oh, yeah, the name, that's right, because we've been referring to as creepy movie tunes. Um, uh, boy, I don't know. Do you have any suggestions? Um, um I think I, I thought, uh, I mean, Lost in the Shadows is a, is a potential. Um, Don't Fear the Reapers, potential. I, you know, I, I was thinking Lost in the Shadows. Um, at one point. Or well, we could do one of the songs that we couldn't use because, I mean, People Are Strange, not really. What was one that you couldn't use because of No, you used it. You just used a different version. Yeah, I, I wanted Sam Cooke's Blue Moon. Right. But. Um, Blue Moon is definitely not a, a title I would use to sequence or to, to title the, the mixtape rather um, we could go with You're Dead <laughs> but um, it's kind of dark um, I kind of like honestly I kind of like Lost in the Shadows. Okay. I think that makes the most sense. Yeah, it makes it's the most universal. Right. So yeah, Lost in the Shadows. Um, and next week, we will be coming... Well, next week is an, another Encore episode. Uh, but following that, we will be coming back with our Uncharted Part 2. No. No? No. No, you're right. You're right. Okay. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you're right. Because Uncharted, and then we're going to have our holiday. Then episode. we'll have... And that'll be season three. Yeah. Season three has, uh, well, not counting the Encore episodes, four episodes left, two two-part episodes left after after this one. Um, we're already thinking and brainstorming all about season four, but we won't get ahead of ourselves there. So, yeah, next week, Uncharted, number two. Number two, well, we'll be coming back with several new songs by uh, today's artists, artists from the last songs from the last twenty years that have not charted on the Hot 100, which is the criteria. Anything else? That's all. I think we're good. I think we're good. Don't too. forget to check out our playlists uh, on Spotify. You can go to our website, GenXMixtape.com, to retrieve those. And you can, uh, I believe, subscribe on Spotify. I don't know. I'm not a subscriber. I should subscribe more. Yeah. I just, I don't yeah. know how that works. Um, we also have a, an email address, podcast at genxmixtape.com. So feel free to email us if you have any comments, questions, suggestions for, um, for themes for next season. And you can check out our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Instagram, and our Twitter. 
Yeah, or or and and if you're willing, we could always use the help with uh, reviews. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you if you like what you what you hear, if you like what we do, another five star review or a written review uh, would would be a lot of help. It would continue to grow our audience. Um, it's been a great summer, though. We, we it has seen quite an uptick in, in audience, and we appreciate that yeah. because it makes it a lot more fun to do when it's not just two of us. In our vanity project in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it doesn't get more Gen X than, you know. Yes. Two, two, two guys sitting here, you know, finding a way to entertain themselves um, without an audience. I mean, that, that's, I, to me, that screams <laughs> Gen X. But nonetheless, um, yeah, we want to thank you. It's been a great, great season so far. We're not done yet, but we're, we're getting there. Um, and also a shout out to our, our sponsor, uh, Jay Callahan painting serving the greater Cleveland area. If you need, uh, something painted for all your painting needs, look her up on Facebook. She does an incredible job. All right. That's well, it. that's all for this week. Hot fun, cool punk. Even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next. Well, in two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, but for now, press pause, lift the needle and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out, if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
Turn the volume to nine 